0: So we are in the book of Exodus, and if you are there, turn with me to chapter 20. We're in a series entitled 10. Obviously, we are going to be making our way to the Ten Commandments. But at the beginning of chapter 20, there are two verses that we need to consider before we jump into the Ten Commandments. Those two verses have led us to this point. Those two verses are what is requiring us to work through the 19 chapters previous to this chapter. And those words are these, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It is these words that is requiring us to go back and to look and to understand what God did up until this point. Now we could jump in and we could look at each of the Ten Commandments individually and explain to you what they mean and how they are to be applied as as, uh, believers today and, and so forth. But we wouldn't have any of the back narrative. We wouldn't know what happened up until this point to require God to give His people these 10 commandments. So we're working through the first 19 chapters. I don't know about you, but I hate walking into the middle of a movie. That's just one of the things that drives me nuts. I'd much rather wait until it starts all over again, etc. But there have been a few times where I've gotten to the theater late and I've jumped in and I missed the first 15 minutes. And you're like, what's this all about? And who is this guy? And why is he doing what he's doing? And why is he saying it? Why is he wearing that? And, and you have no idea because you haven't grasped the backstory. Because if you've noticed today in filmmaking or in storytelling, the first 10 minutes are crucial, aren't they? Either they give you a glimpse of the end of the movie and then they go back five years and then they work up to that point. But usually the first 15 minutes of any story, of any novel, of any movie that is created, the first 15 minutes are just so crucial. So many jump into the Ten Commandments. They jump into it and they skip these two verses you're not going to understand why God felt it necessary to give these to His people unless you understand the back narrative. And that's why we are doing what we are doing. And today especially. For we come to the 12th chapter, and I hope you've also bookmarked that for yourself, and if you turn there with me, we come to the 12th chapter. And for 11 chapters now, we have seen the children of Israel under the servitude of Pharaoh subjected to slavery. And in chapter 12, we now move to the second division of Exodus, which is the emancipation. This is where God sets them free. We have watched God pour out nine judgments upon the nation of Egypt. In each of those judgments, he showed the Egyptians' gods to be what they are, false, pagan, irrelative, irreverent. Disposable, impotent, non-existing, And now it has come to a head by the resistance of Pharaoh and his hardened heart, pushing back each time that Moses came in and set the decree before Pharaoh, for thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Pharaoh resisted. In fact, Pharaoh even began all of this with the audacity of saying, thus says the Lord, well, thus says Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinking himself to be a deity. Thinking that it was the deities of Egypt that allowed him to become Pharaoh and to rule over the Egyptian people. And God is now putting him in his place. God is showing that he is superior to any notion of a pagan deity that could possibly be concepted or created by human thinking. And through the hardness of the heart came to this point. We know it as the Passover, the death of the firstborn. A radical move on behalf of God. But it was God's firstborn that was held captive by the Egyptians, for he calls the nation of Israel his firstborn. It was the firstborn of the Jewish children that were being slaughtered by Pharaoh's father and grandfather previously. And God now is saying that it is going to require this to truly allow my people to be set free. However, though, within this one moment, the greatest foreshadowing of Jesus Christ is found within the Passover. A foreshadowing is just that. It is a shadow cast uh, by an event that is still yet to take place within the future. One of the greatest illustrations I could give you is consider if you're in Washington, D.C. and you're standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and you are looking towards the Washington Monument, what lays between you and that monument? The reflecting pool. And as you stand on the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial and you look down, you can see in the reflecting pool the tip of the Washington Monument. And you can follow it all the way down the center of the... Reflecting pool and then you see the actual monument itself standing horizontally. Think of this, that the Passover is the tip of the monument seen in the reflecting pool. This moment in history is that tip. And as we look down the center of the Old Testament, it climaxes in the person of Christ. And that's what we will be looking at today. For this event is so significant that within it the nation of Israel will discover a new beginning. The event is so significant that they will understand the need for a sacrificial lamb. It is so significant that they will understand as a nation the value of life through the cost of death. Through this... Moment, this significant event will create in them a great appreciation for the blood that allowed death to pass over them. It is my hope that by the end of our time together that you would have even a greater appreciation for Jesus Christ, that you will exalt Him higher. That you will understand what He has done on your behalf and understand that God has done something for you that you were incapable of doing for yourself. That's my hope and desire from our time together this morning. And as we begin to look at chapter 12 together, let us understand that this event is going to create a demarcation line and it's going to be the beginning of a new identity for the nation of Israel. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, "This month shall be the your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. What is about to happen will give the nation of Israel a new beginning. For what is about to happen is going to give the nation of Israel a new identity. It's going to be that significant. For no longer will they be considered a people of slavery. For after this moment they will be considered the people who have been delivered by the hands of God out of slavery. They're going to be known across the known world as the people in whom God freed from the oppression of Egypt. This moment is going to change their identity forever. It is going to be a brand new beginning. This is it. God is telling them from this moment forward, you are no longer going to be the same. You're going to move from slavery to freedom in this one moment. And so as one Warren Worsby wrote, he said, When the Lord liberates you from bondage, it is the dawning of a new day and the beginning of a new life. Now this will begin with the selection of a lamb. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, "...a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats." For you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. And do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire." its head with its legs and its entrails, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. A lamb must be selected. On the tenth day of the first month, the month of Nisan, or at that time, Abib, it was going to be the beginning of the new identity of the nation of Israel, and that beginning began with a lamb. That lamb must be selected on the tenth of that day, of that month, I should say. And each household, according to its size, shall select a lamb. Now, a lamb was a precious item. It was very valuable. So some households may have been too small to be able to afford such a lamb, and then God allowed for that small family to join another family accordingly. But a lamb must be selected. It must be absolutely without blemish, perfect. That's what it means in the Hebrew. Without spot, no birth defect, and it could not have defected or blemished itself in any way in its year of existence, for it must be of the first year. It must be perfect. It must be a male. Of the first year. Now it says here, of the sheep or of the goats. The Hebrew word can mean either, but the most readily image, and I think the correct rendering, is of a sheep, of a lamb. It must be a lamb. And I think the Hebrews practice that to determine what the word would actually uh, represent. On the 14th day, that same lamb, four days, that family need to nourish that small lamb. Small. One year old lamb. And the 14th day, at twilight, that lamb, in the sight of all the family, must be slaughtered. And some of its blood taken to the doorpost and to the lentil. And the doorpost must be painted. The lentil on top, the doorposts either on each side of the door, some believe, or that the crossbeams of the door needed to be painted and covered with the blood of the lamb and as a result death would pass over during that night while they were in the shelter underneath the covering of that blood they would then eat the entire animal itself and if there be anything left those portions of the animal that were unedible they could not just dispose of it in any haphazard way it must be thoroughly burned the next morning a total total picture of consecration unto God through this sacrifice. It must be joined with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, and none of it should be left. It must be entirely consumed. And in it, the foreshadow begins to develop. The picture begins to come into focus. But then he goes on. Notice, For at that moment, get ready for it's time to go. Verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so that you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Get ready, because this is it. After this moment, your freedom has been secured. And so they have this imagery, they have this event, they have this memorial that they will consider and replay year after year after year and as a result it will be to them a lesson and an instruction for what God was yet still going to do. One wrote this in his commentary. He said, By participating in the Passover, the Israelites set themselves apart as holy. The sacrifice of an animal atoned for the sin of the people. The blood smeared on the door frames purified those within. The eating of the sacrificial meat consecrated those who consumed it. And by participating in the Passover ritual, the people sanctified themselves as a nation holy unto God. And at this point, verse 12, God then says He will move throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For now God will pass through. Moses, this is what I am about to do. Notice that this is one of the first times that Pharaoh is not involved in this conversation. There is no demand being made before Pharaoh by Moses. It is God speaking to Moses and God determining sovereignly what he is about to do. This is what I am going to do in the land of Egypt. I am going to move. And when I see the blood, I am going to pass over. We don't know who the identity of the uh, destroyer should be uh, given to. The Psalmist tells us in Psalm seventy-eight forty-nine that it was a, uh, a league of angels. He, the Psalmist writes, he cast on them the furious, uh, the furiousness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. Speaking of this moment in time, and he says, "I will target the firstborn." of man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, I am going to judge them all. As one wrote in their commentary, the purpose of this final plague was like the others, to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, thus showing that God is the Lord. Pharaoh's eldest son and successor supposedly had divine properties. For example, Min, the Egyptian god of reproduction, and Isis, the goddess of love, who attended women at childbirth, were judged as impotent by this climactic plague and catastrophe. In fact, Moses wrote in Numbers 33.4 when he wrote, For the Egyptians were bearing all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods the Lord has executed judgment. But notice what God says about those in whom He witnesses under the doorpost of blood. For I will pass over those houses, for those houses shall be spared. When I see that blood, I will pass over them. Think about that when we read verses like this in the New Testament, Romans 5.9 much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Or when Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. He shall pass over when He sees this blood upon the doors. One wrote in his commentary, answering a question that he supposed at this point would arise in the reader's mind How can the grace of God be found within such a judgment, such an act? How can God still be considered a graceful God in the act of such judgment? but let us all remember all are guilty before God, all fall short of the glory of God. But he wrote and quoted a gentleman that uh, I thoroughly enjoy reading, Vines. Reconciling God's grace with his judgment is impossible, naturally speaking. But what W.E. Vines writes, while the gospel reveals him as infinitely merciful, His mercy is not characterized by leniency towards sin. The scripture never reveals one attribute of God at the expense of another. The revelation of his wrath is essential to a right understanding of his ways in grace. Here's what he's saying. Until you fully understand the wrath of God, the judgment of God, you are not going to fully appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he is saying. This dimension, this dynamic to our understanding of Christianity in America has been all but lost in my opinion. And it's being demonstrated by a severe lack of fear of the Lord. Now as a Christian, I don't cower under God. I fear Him through reverence, as respect, as my heavenly Father. Simply because He is God and I am not but this, the world that is apart from Christ and has not found in Christ, do they fully understand the weight of wrath that they are currently under? Do they understand they are at enmity with God? And it's until that understanding is fully recognized and realized by the individual that the grace of God becomes so immense, that the love of God, the mercy of God becomes, oh, just overwhelming to the individual. We must appreciate this. And in this one event, all of that is being displayed. The wicked are being judged, sentenced to death, because the wages of sin is death. But those who are found covered by the blood are being spared Now, think about this for a moment. So often when we think about this 10th plague, we concentrate on the death of the firstborn, right? The death of the firstborn, because that's how this plague played out. But let me refocus you for a moment. The, The death of the firstborn in the land of Egypt was also accompanied by the life of the firstborn of the Jewish child, right? So in the cost of death, Life had been valued. It has been given a value. And though the lineage of certain families would cease at that moment through the death of the firstborn, the existence of the nation of Israel through the life of the firstborn would continue. So let's understand that. Before we can truly understand the value of life, let us understand the cost of death. That's what God wanted to display here at this moment, at this time. But he goes on here because he wanted this to be a memorial to them. Let's continue here in verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial, a time etched in history that you shall remember this event. That's what a memorial is. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance or regulation. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. And from whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, that is a meeting, a celebration, a gathering. And on the seventh day there shall also be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which is everyone must eat, that only may, they prepare, uh, may be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt... Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first of the month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats, um, eats what is leavened That same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all of your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. This God is etching in the minds of the nation of Israel by creating this memorial that was to be an everlasting ordinance. You are to repeat it every year in this manner. On the 10th of the month, you shall select the lamb. Those three to four days, you shall inspect the lamb to make sure the lamb is perfect. On that 14th day, you shall slaughter the lamb, partake in the uh, feast of Passover. And then for seven days after that, your house shall be purged of leaven and you shall not eat any leaven, which is a yeast that is used in their bread during those entire seven days. If you do, you are cut off. You could be stoned for doing so. You could be excommunicated and sent out permanently for doing so. Because this was so important to God. He wanted them to begin to understand what he was doing. And until we understand this moment, the giving of the Ten Commandments isn't really going to be context for us properly. And so he is moving them, he is creating them a new people, he is creating them a new identity, he is giving them a new beginning, a new start, but it must be lived in this way. And so he sets it forward. And year after year after year, it was meant to be remembered in this way. And as the nation of Israel did so, in verse 21, Moses then calls the people together and explains to them what the Lord has shared with him and he begins to implement all that the Lord has instructed them to do. Then Moses called for all of the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your family and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, which was a certain dried a plant, and they use it as a brush, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever." It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord uh, will give you, just as He promised that you shall keep this service. It It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians and delivered our households And so the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, and so they did. Moses is implementing this on the basis of a promise. Within it, we already discover that Moses is looking forward to the moment when God finally leads them into the land in which he had promised to Abraham from the beginning. Moses saw this as a step in the line of promises in which God has made to his people and this was the beginning of it all. This is the beginning in which those promises were now going to be unfolded and given and dispersed to the nation of Israel. This was it. This was the new beginning that they had waited for. Instructing them very specifically in what the Lord had said. There was no ambiguity Moses even anticipated that the children of the people would ask, what does all of this mean? For there would come a time, obviously sooner than later, then those those who actually experienced the deliverance from Egypt would die and, and go to be with their fathers, and therefore the children would not have experienced it for themselves. And God was hoping that this would be a constant communicator to the nation of Israel, and allowing them to remember what he has done on their behalf. Now we know through the history of Egypt, I'm sorry, Israel, that they did quickly forget. They quickly forgot what the Lord had done on their behalf. And they did not reverence him in the way that they ought to, and they suffered grave consequences for doing so. But as a result, we now have this moment etched in time these events recorded for us, memorialized in a feast that was meant to be kept year after year after year. Now going through it at this moment, the children of Israel were obviously clueless to all of the ramifications to what all of this meant. And even though they did not fully grasp and understand what God was instructing them to do, they were obedient and did it. And as a result, their life was spared. And they were allowed then the freedom that they were so hoping and desiring for. Understand, freedom cannot come unless the bondages of slavery have been absolved. Freedom cannot come until new life begins. And that is what God was trying to communicate to His people. Of course, then God, in verse 29, then pours out this plague upon the nation of Egypt, and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. You and I, in hindsight, look at this as history past. And one of the things that we are trying to establish at this church is that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece to the entire Bible. For the volume of the book speaks of Him. And so when we read such an event, we must then look to the person of Christ. And if this is truly that foreshadowing, if this is truly the tip of the monument in the reflecting pool, and if I look down the corridor of time and I look then up, will I find Christ And we will. Do you know that in this one event, God put in their mind freedom? God put in their mind a lamb. God put in their mind death. God put in their mind blood. Just from this one event. Now think about how that translates into the New Testament. Think about how we, as believers in Jesus Christ, see all of those four things accomplished in the person of Jesus Himself. When I come to the New Testament, I am quickly reminded that Jesus was the firstborn, the firstborn of God. I remember that time when He is being baptized by John the Baptist. And the Spirit of God descends upon him in the form of a dove. And then that great voice is heard of the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Some translations call him the only begotten Son of the Father. So we have the firstborn. Through the firstborn... He is then called something very specific by John the Baptist who after being baptized by John as he is departing, John makes a declaration, a very clear declaration concerning the identity of this firstborn of God, this only begotten of God. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And then quickly we are reminded that this lamb died on our behalf. He died there, of course, on the cross. And Paul wrote it this way. In Philippians 2, 5-11, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have the firstborn, we have the lamb, we have the death, and then we have the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ is referred to more in the New Testament than other aspects of his time here on this earth. Did you know that the blood of Christ is mentioned in the writings of the New Testament nearly three times as often as the cross and five times more frequently than his personal death? And I think of those words of Peter who articulated it this way, knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver and gold for your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your father, but you were, but you were redeemed, that is, by the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. Do you see it all coming together? what the children of Israel did that night for the very first time was the tip of the monument in the reflecting pool. And from that time going forward, they would have this experience, this event, this memorial to prepare them for what God was about to do in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And if that isn't enough for you, let me give you this where Paul makes it abundantly clear for us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I didn't say it, Paul did. Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread with sincerity and truth. What is this whole unleavened bread thing about? Why was it to start the day of Passover and continue for seven days? Leaven throughout the Bible has always been a type of sin. And God wanted his people to know that the consecration that took place there at the Passover feast was meant to be remembered by leaving sin behind, purging sin from your house, and walking in newness of life. And Paul brings that up in 1 Corinthians saying that as they allowed sin to continue in the church, it acted just like leaven and it permeated the whole church. It affected everything. And then he reminds the church there in Corinth that Christ is our Passover. It is through His blood that we appropriate upon ourselves by coming to Him in repentance and believing by faith. That at that moment, that blood that Christ has shed has been applied to us just as it had been applied to those doorposts and death passes over us. We go from darkness to light, from death to life in the person of Jesus Christ, our Passover. Now turn with me back to Exodus chapter 12 for a moment, if you will, because there's a progression found that I think is something you need to know. In verses 3 to 5, Notice as God is articulating this to Moses that the lamb is preceded by three very distinct words. The word lamb there is preceded by very three very distinct words. In verse 3 of chapter 12 of Exodus it says this. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb. A lamb. This would indicate to the individual that a lamb is needed. So the word lamb is simply uh, preceded by the word a. A lamb is needed. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. But then in verse 4 it changes. And if the household is too small for the lamb, for the lamb, let him and his neighbors uh, next to his house take an account to the number of persons according to each man's need. You shall make account for what? The lamb. Oh, now something's changed. It goes from the necessity of a lamb to a lamb being provided, right? It goes from just knowing that a lamb is needed to a lamb being provided, the lamb. But then it's preceded by a third word in verse 5. The first two words. And what? Your lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year. Your lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ must be appropriated. The act of what Christ has done on the cross must be appropriated to your life just as when the lamb's blood was spilt and gathered in the basin there at the Passover meal. That wasn't enough. Even knowing that a lamb is needed, having a lamb provided is not enough. They needed to take that basin, take the hyssop, and point, uh, painted over the doorposts of their home. And if the doorpost was the lintel, the top board, and the supporting boards of the door, the image would have been a cross. But there's debate on that. Was it just the frame of the door? Was it the top and the two sides? Or was there this center crossbeam that would have indicated a cross? Interesting to consider. But we have no We have no evidence that gives us enough to be assured that that was the case. But the door, it needed to be painted. It's not enough to know that you need a Savior, it's not enough to know that a Savior has been provided. You must appropriate what the Savior has done for you by coming in repentance and believing on Him for eternal life. That is what is necessary. Now, let me take you a little bit further, if I may. If you're, fa- if you're not fascinated enough already, let me see if I can bring you a little bit more into that place where you are then just blown away. For on the 10th day of the first month, it was required of the children of Israel to go out and to select the lamb, wasn't it? Do you know that Jesus Christ, the day he rode in on the donkey, guess what day it was? It was the 10th of the day of Nisan, the first month. And as he proceeded into Jerusalem, he would have proceeded into Jerusalem with all of the pilgrims coming from all over the known area who were coming to worship there at the temple. And what would all of them be gathered there to uh, do? Sacrifice their lamb. So as individuals were walking into Jerusalem from all sides, they would have been carrying lambs. But our lamb was being carried on a donkey. Now, over those next four days, the children of Israel were required to inspect the lamb to make sure that it was perfect without blemish in any way, shape, or form. The Gospels tell us that after Jesus uh, rode into Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, the the day that the lambs were required to be gathered, he was then examined by The people. He was examined by the religious leaders. He was examined by Herod. He was examined by Pilate. And guess what? They all found him to be innocent without blemish. Pretty interesting, huh? And then he was killed on the 14th of Nisan. And then he rose again. And at that moment that he was killed, crucified on the cross, what happened in the temple? The curtain tore from top to bottom. Access had been regained that was severed through sin. The Lamb of the world had taken away the sins of the world. At that one moment. I don't know about you, but that's extraordinary. That's significant. One wrote this about that event. He said, The Lamb was chosen and examined on the tenth day of the month and carefully watched for four days to make sure it meant the divine specification. There is no question that Jesus met all the requirements to be our Lamb. For the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. During the days preceding Passover, our Lord's enemies questioned him repeatedly, waiting for him to say something that they could attack. During His various trials and interrogations, Jesus was repeatedly questioned and He passed every test. Jesus knew no sin, did no sin, and in Him there was no sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. Are you blown away yet? Have you come to appreciate your freedom in Jesus Christ and what it has cost? Have you come to appreciate the selection of a lamb that was needed, a firstborn lamb that was needed, and that God provided Himself a sacrifice, fulfilling a promise that He gave to Isaac and Abraham so many years earlier. Do you appreciate the new life that you have in the wake and the cost of death? Have you come now to appreciate for yourself the blood that was shed for you? Don't take this lightly. Okay, this is what Christ needed to do to get us back to God the Father. Now, just because Christ has done this, a lamb is needed, a lamb is provided. It needs to be appropriated. And this is where you respond by coming in repentance and crying out to God, asking for forgiveness, and then believing on Jesus Christ. Just throwing yourself at His mercy, His grace, His love that's demonstrated through that incredible act of sacrifice. As Paul said, he is our Passover. I like what D.A. Carson wrote when he said, the importance of this event cannot be overestimated. It not only re- signaled not only the release of the Israelites from slavery, but the dawning of a new covenant with their Redeemer. At the same time, it constituted a picture. Guilty people face death. And the only way to escape that sentence is if a lamb dies instead of those who are sentenced to die. On that night, he was betrayed. And Jesus took the bread and the wine and instituted a commemorative rite. And this too took place on the festival of Passover. And if this new rite connects the old with which it points, the death of Christ the calendar changed again and a new and climactic redemption had been achieved, God still passes over those who are secured by the blood of Christ. I, do these, I, I, I bring these things to your attention so the next time you gather here in this church and the next time we are being led in worship, Keep these things in your heart and in your mind. Understand the value of your new life. Understand what it costs. Understand what it required. Understand that it required God to do something for you that you could not do for yourself. And consider that the next time that you are faced with a decision either to glorify your Lord or to cause people to blaspheme your Lord because of the actions that you fall into through temptation. That's what I do. When I'm faced with temptation, I remember what my new life cost. I remember what Christ went through. I remember that God did something for me that I could not do for myself. And at that moment that I would be persuaded or tempted to move away from what God would have, I fall back into His loving arms of grace and say, Lord, carry me through one more time. That's what we have in our Passover lamb. And hopefully you appreciate that more today than you ever had before.